0: to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. We're going to start reading Luke 24. We're going to begin reading in verse 44. Then he said to them, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would speak through your word into our hearts and minds, that you would illumine our minds, So that we can hear and see and understand what it is that your spirit is saying to the churches. That you would cause our hearts to be repentant and joyful in hearing the word of our Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us have some understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, what you have sent him to do. Why that matters to ministry and to mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the third week in which I want to address the fact of um, that, or the fact that who God is and what God has done is central to our understanding of the Great Commission. We are baptizing people in His name in the Great Commission. So the question is, Who is he? Last week when we looked at Matthew 28, 19 and 20, if you know the the text starting in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. I asked some questions. Who gave him that authority and why was he worthy of receiving that authority? Then he goes on to say, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations or all peoples. Make disciples of them. And then he says, baptizing them here's a means baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit well who is this god who has one name that is father son and holy spirit in the last two weeks we considered the persons of the father and the son and this morning i want to consider the person of the holy spirit The Great Commission passage in Matthew 28 clearly speaks of him as one of the Trinitarian persons, putting him on par with the Father and the Son. We also see the Holy Spirit really implied behind a statement that Jesus makes. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely, now listen to what he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has commanded the apostles to proclaim this good news in all nations. And as God promised to be with Moses in Exodus 3 and with Joshua and with Gideon on the missions he gave to them, so Jesus promises to be with his people in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But please don't miss this. Without Jesus being with us, we can do nothing. We need him to be with us. But how can he be with us, given the fact that he ascends to the Father's right hand? See, if Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where he currently, presently rules and reigns, then how can he be with us always to the end of the age? And I'm intentionally saying with us, as this promise carries the commissioning of the apostles beyond the lifetime of the apostles because the apostles died they didn't live to the end of the age right and thus passes that commission to the church so how can jesus be with us as the church fulfilling the great commission always well he is in us or with us if you will by and in the holy spirit but we need to get more information than what we have here so to do that I want to look at Luke 24 and specifically Luke 24:49 and I want to make three observations from the text in Luke 24:49 and then I want to draw out two major implications so three observations and then two major implications the the three observations are these and I'll I'll relist them again in a second but the first implication is that the Holy Spirit is promised by the Father the second implication is the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Son. And the third implication is that the Holy Spirit is the only effectual or powerful witness among the nations. So, so let's look at the, our first observation. The Holy Spirit is promised by the Father. Look at Luke 24 and verse 49. And behold, behold is, is this phrase like pay attention. Listen up, consider carefully, hear what I'm about to say, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. It's an interesting phrase, the promise of my Father. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Jesus spoke to the apostles after his resurrection here and prior to his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And he told them first how he was... He was promised in the Old Testament. Look at Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus understood that the scope of the Old Testament was Christ. That the whole of the Old Testament is Christian Scripture pointing forward to the Christ. And he said, I told you that. I've told you I was promised in the Old Testament. And then he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And he told them of the work he was sent to do. Look at verse 45 and 46. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament Scriptures there. And said to them, in the Old Testament, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead hear that the scriptures the old testament scriptures told us about this coming christ who would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and then he told the apostles after that 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 they're witnesses of this fact the fact that he is the christ who suffered and died and rose from the dead and thus as his witnesses eyewitnesses here folks As his eyewitnesses, he tells them what they are commanded to preach among all nations. Look at verse 47 and 48. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, that's the name of Jesus, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, you are witnesses of these things. Listen, they witnessed these things. And the the word for witness there in both Luke 24, 48, and incidentally, the term for witness in in the book of Acts is a technical term speaking of those who were eye and ear witnesses of these events. You go through the book of Acts and you can find that. Now, I'm not saying there aren't implications to us that we also witness to what Christ has done for us and in us. But we are not the kind of witness he's talking about specifically here, which is the kind of witness who actually walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, saw him crucified, saw him buried, saw him resurrected, walked with him post-resurrection, heard him teach, and were then commissioned in this way to be the apostles or the foundation of the church. And Jesus then says to them this very express thing. And then Jesus said, look at verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's interesting. It leads us to two questions. Two questions I want to consider here on the promise of the Father. First, who is the promise of the Father? And second, when is this promised by the Father? Who is the promise of the Father, and when is he promised by the Father? So let's look at the first question. Who is the promise of the Father? Now, that might seem like an odd question, as Luke 24, 49 does not refer to him as a who. It just says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So why do I call him a who? Why do I use the pronoun him? Look, keep your hand here, and look at John 14. Jesus will reference him again. I'll tell you why. John 14. And drop down to verse 16. So you know this is during the last night of the life of Christ. This is after he has instituted the Lord's Supper. Wash the disciples' feet, etc. Just before he's going into the garden to pray the high priestly prayer in John 17. And he takes time, Jesus does, takes time. The night, really, that he's going to be betrayed and then um, eventually tried and crucified on that night and the next morning, he takes time before his crucifixion to teach them about the Holy Spirit. Now look at what he says in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now that word in the Greek, one form is paraclete. Another paraclete. Notice that word, another, to be with you forever. Another paraclete to be with you forever. Jesus was the original paraclete the advocate the helper the comforter the consolation who's first given to them we hear that title given to him in luke 2:25 when he's in the scene with Simeon in the temple and Simeon speaks of him as the consolation of israel or the paraclete of israel the helper the comforter the advocate now the Father will send a, another paraclete, another helper, and the Greek word here is, is another of the same kind, rather than the Greek word which would be another of a different kind. He'll send another of the same kind of advocate, another of the same kind of comforter or helper. And notice what Jesus calls him next in John fourteen 17. He'll be with you forever, verse 17, even the spirit of truth. Interesting phrase, because Jesus has just said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. Now the spirit of truth is coming. Jesus just said that. I am the truth. The spirit is coming to testify to him who is the truth. So now another of the same kind of advocate whom the Father will give is called the spirit of truth. But look at the pronouns in John 14, 17 with regard to him. Look at them. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it, that being the world, neither sees him, the Holy Spirit, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You that The Holy Spirit is a divine person, just as the Father is and just as the Son is. We confess one God in three persons. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not an impersonal force. He is a he. He's a person. Now notice what it says in John 1525. The Holy Spirit's being sent to testify. Actually, let's look at 1425. 1425. So he comes here. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now all things does not mean all things that can be known. The Holy Spirit is not coming to teach you calculus. Okay, we understand that. He's talking about all things with regard to Jesus, with regard to the saving, redemptive work that we have in the Scriptures. He's going to teach you all things. Again, the Holy Spirit is the advocate, the comforter, the helper, the witness. He's being sent by the Father to teach the apostles all things and to remind them of all that he said. The Holy Spirit is being sent to testify, if you will, about Jesus and his work. Look at John 15 and verse 26. John 15 and verse 26. Well, actually, um, yeah, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit is the witness. He is the witness, if you will, empowering the apostolic witness. It is because he will come and bear witness about me that you will then bear witness about me. He's sent to be a witness to Christ. And he doesn't just witness to Christ externally, as in through the apostles' words, when the apostles say to the crowds, We walked with Jesus, we knew him, he was a friend of ours, we saw his miracles. We saw him suffer. We saw him go to the cross and be crucified. We saw the blood come out of his side. We saw him buried and dead. We saw the empty tomb. We saw him resurrected. We walked with him. He taught us directly. It's not just that they said that, and then they took that and applied it and said, not only do we know all this about Jesus, but listen, he did all this for us and our salvation. So repent of your sins and believe the gospel and be saved it isn't just that the holy spirit is in them telling them to say those things empowering them to say those things but it's something more it's that the holy spirit is speaking through them to witness internally to the people who are hearing them speak listen to what he says drop down to verse 7 of chapter 16 john chapter 16 and verse 7 nevertheless i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that i go away I wish I could spend more time on that phrase, but I'm not going to. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So he is going to convict the world internally. He's not only going to be bearing witness to the apostles, but he's going to be bearing witness through the apostles and into the hearts of their hearers. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you or lead you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, or declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is. He's coming to witness to the Son. He has heard, Martin Luther speaks of it this way. It's as if the Holy Spirit is in heaven, as if. It's an analogy. Please don't carry it too far. Hearing the Father preach the Son. And then the Holy Spirit takes that and preaches it to the apostles and into the hearts of people. Now, there's more to say about these passages than I have time for, but here's what I want you to gather The Holy Spirit is being sent by the Father and by the Son. He is promised by the Father to witness to the Son. He is being sent to witness internally to men about the incarnate Christ. He is the one who speaks the gospel into your hearts. But here's the second question. When did did the Father promise the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, I'm saying the promise of the Father upon you and expects that they would know about this promise. So when does the Father promise the Holy Spirit? Well, well, first, um, and I'm going to go in order of how it appears in Scripture, not in order of, if you will, time and eternity. First, the Holy Spirit is promised in the Old Testament. Now, he's promised in numerous passages, but I'm only going to point to two. I'm going to point to one specifically because you're going to hear, you're going to hear this language in Luke and in Acts. Isaiah 32, 15, when... Isaiah is prophesying um, about both the northern kingdom going into exile uh, because of their sin, or the northern kingdom of Israel going into exile because of their sin and idolatry, and the southern kingdom going into exile, um, or the kingdom we call Judah going into exile under Babylon, the northern kingdom under Assyria, and the southern kingdom under Babylon, as he speaks of their exile that's already in place in the northern kingdom and coming for the southern kingdom. He talks about how how the Lord's curse, the curses promised under the covenant with Moses that we see specifically in Leviticus, particularly Leviticus 25 and 26, how these in 27, how these curses are coming upon the land, and so the land is desolate. There is no fruit. There is just briars, etc. Things are going poorly for Israel. And in the midst of that, Isaiah says this, that it's going to be in this condition. Things are going to be, the palace of the king will be forsaken. The, the ground will be parched. There will be no rain. You're only going to have thorns and briars, no fruit. It's going to be bad for Israel. Now listen to what he says in, verse, in chapter 32, verse 15 of Isaiah. Until, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. It's interesting. The Spirit will be poured upon us from on high. Do you hear that language? The other major passage I would turn to this morning, but I won't, but because we'll look at it in Acts 2 in just a minute, is Joel 2.28. Joel 2.28 through 32 It's another major passage. But until the Holy Spirit is poured upon us from on high. So the Holy Spirit is promised in the Old Testament. Jason read some passages this morning from Ezekiel in which the Holy Spirit is promised in the Old Testament. Second, the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus. That ought to be enough. The Father promised the Holy Spirit, and we know that because Jesus said he did. If it's Luke 24, 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. John 14 through 16, which I just read. So he has promised in the Old Testament. He's promised by Jesus. And third, If we were going in the order of time and eternity, he is promised in eternity before the foundation of the world. He's promised there. Look at Ephesians. Keep your hand in Luke 24 and look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3 we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, a, this is a doxological praise to the Father. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the Father has blessed us, in Christ really speaking of our union with Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So every spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly places is given to us in Christ, and it's given to us by the Father. He's the one who's blessed us with this. Even, verse 4, as He chose us in Him, the Father chose us in the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And when did he do all of that? In eternity past. And what's he working out? He then goes on to the redemption that the son... Here's the plan of the father. He then goes on to the redemption that the son accomplishes. And in verse 9, look down at uh, verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So there was a plan in eternity past that's being accomplished in Christ in the fullness of time. In other words, it's a kind of prophetic language. It's a way to put it on a prophetic clock, if you will. That in eternity past, God planned to send his son to redeem us. And then you were hearing about those promises in time in the Old Testament. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Now look at verse eleven. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Listen, so He's promised an eternity. The Father in eternity chooses, decrees, plans to bless us in his Son and by the Holy Spirit. The Father eternally decreed to send the Son. He decreed to send the Son to accomplish our redemption. And he eternally decreed to send the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to us. So the Holy Spirit is the third person, the triune God, who's promised to be sent. And it is from this that we understand why the Father promised to send the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please hear that. I think oftentimes we read our Old Testament and we think... Well, the Father's promising to send the Son. We read our New Testament and we think, here the Father is fulfilling the, send, the promise to send the Son. And what we don't pay enough of attention to is the pro- Father is also promising to send the Holy Spirit. And here in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of the Father's promise to send the Holy Spirit. The Son was sent to accomplish our redemption, to purchase it, to pay for it. The Holy Spirit was sent to apply the redemptive work of the Son to us. The mission of the Son is to accomplish our redemption. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to apply the work of the Son to our hearts. Listen to how the Puritan John Owen spoke to this. English 17th century Puritan. Listen to what he said. For when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace, he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means thereof. See, when the Father designed to redeem you, he appointed two great means to that end. The one was the giving of his Son for them, and the other was the giving of his Spirit unto them. And hereby was was way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. Hereby were the love, grace and wisdom of the father in the design and projection of the whole. The love, grace and condescension of the son in the execution, purchase and procurement of grace and salvation for sinners with the love Grace and power of the Holy Spirit in the effectual or effective application of all under the souls of men. Here they were made gloriously conspicuous, he says. Hence, from the first entrance of sin, in Genesis 3, from the first entrance of sin, there were two general heads of the promise of God unto men concerning the means of their recovery and salvation. The one was that concerning the sending of the son to be incarnate to take our nature upon him and to suffer for us therein. The other concerning the giving of a spirit to make the effects and fruits of the incarnation, obedience and suffering of his son effectual in us and towards us. Now before we say more about this I want to look at our second major observation, look back at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. <clears throat> and behold, I am sending. Notice, pay attention, listen up, take notice. It's not just that the Father, the promise of the Father is coming, it's that I am sending the promise of the Father. The Lord Jesus, the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected. And ascended Christ, said, I am sending the Holy Spirit upon you. He's the one who sends him. We have seen this language already in John, but we need to understand what's happening here in history. Jesus is saying that when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit upon them. To understand this, we first need to first understand that Jesus himself was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke Chapter 1. We're not saying the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in the Old Testament um, prior to this, nor in the New Testament. We're saying he's talking about a specific historical redemptive event. And I don't have time to get into all that today. I wish I did. I probably will send you a note in email about that question. Um, but look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And the angel answered her, that is Mary. Mary's asking, how can this be since I'm a virgin that I'm going to be pregnant? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit, notice the language, will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So at Jesus' conception, the Holy Spirit is at work. Now now look at Luke chapter 3. And verse 16, he is a spirit-indwelt, if you will, spirit-filled man from conception. Look at Luke chapter 3, and we'll look at the promise from John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as he's speaking just before the baptism of Jesus, says this. John answered them, verse 16 of Luke 3. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, Jesus is the one who will baptize the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, if you will, indwelled by the Holy Spirit from conception, empowered by the Holy Spirit from conception. He's the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's going to pour the Holy Spirit out upon you. Now look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is here anointed for his messianic ministry by the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit was absent from his life prior to this point. We see the Holy Spirit present in his life from conception. That means that the Holy Spirit is anointing him for a specific messianic work that he's now beginning to do. Jesus, then, is promising that same Holy Spirit will be given to his disciples. In other words, what he's pointing at in Luke 24, 49 is the same thing that John the Baptist said about him. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. Now, now look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Keep your hand in Luke 24, but look at Acts chapter 1. You're going to see the same language again. Acts, um, if you're not aware, is the second volume of Luke's writing. Luke is giving the history of Christ and his church, or really the history of the work of Christ um, pre and post ascension. From the incarnation to the ascension in Luke. And then in Acts, really from the ascension through his continuing work by the Spirit in his church. But I want to look at what he says there in Acts 1 and verse 4. Jesus has come to the apostles, and here's what he says. And while staying with them, he ordered them. Now notice the order there, and we'll look back at that in a minute. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's coming not many days from now. Jesus ascends after this scene, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or Pentecost, comes 10 days later. So not many days from now is right. In fact, about 10 days from now. And look what he goes on to say, and at least how Peter then understands what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You know they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them for this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises. They're waiting for that. They're in the upper room. They've had to replace one of the apostles with another eyewitness because they are technically eyewitnesses. So they replace him with Matthias because who do they replace? Judas Iscariot because he's committed suicide, turned on Christ, etc. at this point. So they're, as they're waiting, the Holy Spirit is then poured out upon them. They begin speaking in the foreign languages of the nations around them that are present for Pentecost. And then Peter stands up and says this, verse 14, but Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, that's the crowds, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So it's only nine in the morning. They haven't been drinking. If you're drinking by nine in the morning, we need to talk afterward, but but this is what this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now look what was uttered through the prophet Joel. It is saying this is what Joel said. Joel promised something. This is that. Hear that? That's what Peter's saying. This that you're seeing is that which Joel promised. Now what is it? And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit. On all flesh. These are the last days. How do we know these are the last days? Because the Christ has come, the Christ has died, suffered and died, the Christ has risen from the dead, and the Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns, and he's now poured out his spirit. These are the last days. So, if people are looking for the last days and telling you, I think it's the end times, you should say, Yes, it is. It has been for nearly 2,000 years, right? So, that's good. You're right. Peter understands this is the coming of the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament. Now, look what he goes on to say in verse 33 of Acts 2. After he speaks about Jesus' resurrection and that they're all witnesses of that, he says this in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's where Jesus is. Now, notice what he says. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has, as the incarnate Christ, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord, is now pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon his church as he promised. Now what's happening here? When a king is coronated, whenever a king was coronated, he gave gifts to his people. So at the coronation of King Jesus, when he is given authority over all heaven and earth, As the incarnate Christ, he pours out abundantly the gift of the Holy Spirit upon his people. And to what end does the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the Son give the Holy Spirit? Why does the Holy Spirit come? We understand why the Son came. He came to reconcile us to God. Why did the Holy Spirit come? See, Jesus came to accomplish our redemption, to purchase it with his own blood. But why did the Holy Spirit come? Listen to how Petrus Van Maastricht beautifully states this. Just as the Son chiefly takes up the cause of man before God by offering himself for man, so also the Holy Spirit chiefly takes up the cause of God before man by leading man to faith in God and the mediator, and by sanctifying and strengthening him, so that the salvation that was destined for him by the Father and accomplished by the Son might be Applied. You know that the Holy Spirit comes to take up the cause of God before man by leading man to faith in God and the mediator, by sanctifying and strengthening, strengthening him, so that the salvation that was destined for him by the Father and accomplished by the Son might be applied to him. And that leads to our third major observation, and that's this: the Holy Spirit is the only. Effectual witness among the nations. Hear that? The first one is that the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. The second one is that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Son. And the third here, the Holy Spirit is the only effectual, powerful witness among the nations. What do I mean by this? I mean that the Holy Spirit is the only powerful witness that can apply the redemption of Christ to the hearts of men. Look back at Luke. 24 again. Keep your hands in Acts 1, by the way. Keep your hand there, but look back at Luke 24 and and notice this very interesting thing that Jesus commands. And behold, verse 49 again, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now notice this next command but stay in the city, that's Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Stay there until you're clothed with power from on high. Now look at Acts 1-4. Jesus will say this a bit more. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. See, why does Jesus command them to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And why do they properly understand that command is we need to go and pray and wait. We they went to the upper room, they prayed and they waited. And they prayed and they waited. And they prayed and they waited. Why? I mean, who are these men? Think about who they are. They saw Jesus. They saw his life. They saw his miracles? They heard him teach. They witnessed the transfiguration. They saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw him resurrected. And in that 10, before the 10-day waiting period, if you will, sounds like California gun law, doesn't it? But (laughs) (laughs) before that period started, what did they do? They saw him ascend. These are facts of which they were eyewitnesses. So why command them to not proclaim these facts? Wait in Jerusalem, just pray, wait for the Holy Spirit. What would be wrong with them going about telling people what they saw and heard? And that brings us to the necessity of the Holy Spirit to apply the gospel work of Jesus to the hearers. The Holy Spirit is the only effectual witness to Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And incidentally, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is not a command. There is no imperative here. This is a promise. This is telling you what's about to happen in the lives of the apostles, not what they're commanded to do. Look at verse 8. But you'll receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we understand that this means they are to go to the historical city of Jerusalem and preach. That they are to go to the historical area of Judea, the historical area of Samaria and then to the Gentile nations and proclaim the gospel and be witnesses to Christ and talk about what they saw and heard. By the way, Bakersfield is not your Jerusalem, and Taft is not your Samaria, etc. These are real historical places they really went to. Right? We're going to the end of the, to the, end of the earth to so the Gentile nations as well. And so they understand that they're supposed to go there, but they are only going to go there once the Holy Spirit has come upon them in power. See, Jesus is going to continue his work among the nations by his spirit. That's why it says in Acts 1-1, when Paul starts in the first book of Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that verb began is signaling you to something, isn't it? That Jesus is going to continue doing and teaching by the spirit, through his apostles, and then what becomes, we know, as the church. Jesus' work began in the gospel story, And it continues as that gospel is announced to the nations. And it continues through the Holy Spirit working in and by the means of the church. He, the Holy Spirit, is the powerful effectual witness for mission. This is going to sound almost sacrilege when I say it. But we need to understand the necessity of the Holy Spirit to our salvation. So I'm going to say it. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the mission of the Holy Spirit, the mission of Christ profits no one. Do you hear that? If the Holy Spirit is not sent to apply the work of Christ, then the incarnation, life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are merely an historical work that accomplished nothing for any of us. We have facts. Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. And we have doctrine. Jesus did this for us and our salvation. But we have no application. No one will believe. No one will repent. No one will receive the benefits of the work of Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that his work cannot be applied to those who hear the gospel message apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus commands the apostles to stay in Jerusalem until he comes. They cannot do the work of the ministry apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there will be no success in the ministry. None. Zero. I don't know that we believe that. I think we think that we can generate some success apart from the Holy Spirit. If only I speak eloquently enough. If only I explained this clearly enough, if only I knew how to answer that one objection right away with clarity and force, then people would be saved. If only we just organized the ministry of the church exactly right, then people would be saved. If only every believer was always consistently holy and never offended anybody unnecessarily, then the whole world would be saved, right? If we could just arrange our lives and our ministry in such a way we could sort of guarantee some kind of outcome. And it's nonsense. I'm not saying don't be consistently godly. Please do not hear me say that. I am saying that we need to understand that the Holy Spirit blows where he wills. Now, he gives the church means, but he doesn't tell us here's what the outcome is guaranteed to be. If you just do A, B, and C, you will get outcome X, Y, and Z. That is nowhere promised. He works when he wills, where he wills. He is God. Do you understand that? Listen to what John Owen said about where Jesus wanted the apostles to look for help. John Owen said this, He would have them look neither for assistance in their work nor success unto it, but from the promised spirit alone. And lets them know also that by his aid, they should be enabled to carry their testimony of him to the uttermost parts of the earth. And herein lay and herein doth lie the foundation of the ministry of the church as also its continuance, and its efficacy or power. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, and it is only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit who opens their eyes to see the good news of the glory of Christ so that they are able to see him and believe in him. Only the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to draw two major implications from this. Two major implications. First, The Holy Spirit is necessary to ministry and missions. First major implication. The Holy Spirit is necessary to any kind of ministry. And because we're doing a series on missions, particularly to the missionary endeavor. Necessary. Some sow, some water. God gives the increase. Now, I've already asserted this in my third point, but I want to list some ways that this takes shape in Scripture. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm going to, elist, I'm going to list 11 activities of the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't write them down. I'm going to send them in an email to you. I already posted them on Facebook for you. Do not write them down. Um, I was asked earlier, are, are these 11 works, activities, all that the Holy Spirit does? Nope. They, this is by no means exhaustive. I was also asked, are these in the order salutis, ordo salutis, right? Are they in the order of salvation? I'm not trying to list them in a particular order of salvation. If you, if you don't even know what that is, you're probably better off in some ways. So... <clears throat> Let, 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 me, let me list what they are. The order um, here that I wrote down is not really no particular order, but I want you to hear some of the things the Scripture says the Spirit does. I'm not going to explain these. I'm just going to list them. The Holy Spirit inspires the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16. We have our Bibles because the Holy Spirit inspired them. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind, giving spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14, and several other passages. The Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, Titus 3:15. The Holy Spirit gives life to the spiritually dead, makes you born again, John 3, 1 through 8. The Holy Spirit converts men to Christ's lordship, 1 Corinthians 12:3. What does Paul say? No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mean you can't utter those words. He means you can't really believe them except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies the grace of adoption Galatians four six. The Holy Spirit sanctifies men in Christ 2 Corinthians three eighteen. The Holy Spirit gives assurance to men in Christ Romans eight sixteen. The Holy Spirit continually intercedes in our hearts as we do not know what to pray Romans eight twenty six through twenty seven. The Holy Spirit emboldens Christ's people to witness Acts four thirty one. The Holy Spirit gives gift to the gifts to the church for the furtherance of the gospel and the building up of the body First Corinthians twelve Ephesians four. Romans 12. Those are just 11 activities of the Holy Spirit. I could go on beyond that. He is necessary to our work. From the scriptures we hold to that word being heard by the people to whom we tell it. He is necessary. He is necessary. Second uh, major implication, the Holy Spirit uses ordinary means. Hear that? The Holy Spirit is necessary, and the Holy Spirit, secondly, uses ordinary means for ministry and missions. L- look at Luke 24 again, verse 47, 48. <clears throat> Jesus commands them that they're going to do this once the Holy Spirit comes upon them, but look what he commands them to do. And that repentance, forgiveness of sins, he's saying that this is going to happen, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from jerusalem your witnesses these things see what are the apostles going to do when the holy spirit comes upon them they're going to witness they're going to tell what they heard and saw they are going to proclaim that's what they're going to do when the holy spirit comes upon them they're going to proclaim jesus christ that is the work of the holy spirit he's exalting the son exalting him before us in our hearts and minds and they're to proclaim him that's all they're going to do it's very simple they're to say what they saw and heard they're going to talk about the historical accomplishment uh, accomplishment of our redemption in Jesus Christ see they're going to say we saw him crucified we saw him resurrected. We heard him with our own ears. And these historical facts have doctrinal implications. Because this is true, you need to repent of your sins because he's the Lord. And you need to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins because he's the Savior. And they're to proclaim that to all the nations. They're to preach what they saw and heard and apply it to the nations. They're to baptize and teach And pray. Folks, these are very ordinary means, aren't they? They're to do what the Lord Jesus commanded them, and they're to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they employ these ordinary means of preaching and teaching and praying and baptizing, the Holy Spirit will work to save people in every tribe and tongue and nation. Now we have received the apostolic and prophetic witness in the Holy Scriptures. And so we do the ordinary work of preaching and teaching that word to others. We preach and teach this word, this word that is the foundation laid by the prophets and the apostles. Listen to how the Second London Confession of Faith, and by the way, the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession also say this. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily worked or wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. In other words, by those things it is also increased and strengthened. Now that may seem somewhat counterintuitive and and a bit remarkable. The Holy Spirit, who is supernatural, works by ordinary means of Bible teaching and sacraments, and prayer. You see there's, there's nothing extraordinary here. Now I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't do extraordinary things. He can do whatever he wants. I am saying the Holy Spirit works extraordinarily through ordinary means. Please hear that. The Holy Spirit works extraordinarily through ordinary means. Why? So he gets the glory. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 5. Thus, we are commanded to preach and teach and pray and baptize, and he promised to use those ordinary means to do the extraordinary work of saving people in every tribe and tongue and nation. And the Holy Spirit works through that preaching and teaching of the Word. Thus, we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit working through his Word. You want to know if a church is Spirit-dependent? Do You want to know if they're dependent on the Holy Spirit? It, folks, it, you don't have to go in there and look for extra special manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that doesn't demonstrate um, a whole lot of any dependence. You want to know if the, whole, the church is dependent on the Holy Spirit? Are they dependent on the word that he's given them, and do they pray? You'll know. Are they constantly wanting to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the word he superintended? And are they continually praying? Listen to how John Owen sums up the promise of the Holy Spirit. In this promise, then, the Lord Christ founded the church itself. And by it, he built it up. And this is the hinge, whereon the whole weight of it does turn and depend unto this day. Take it away. Take away the promise of the Holy Spirit Suppose it to cease as unto a continual accomplishment and there will be an absolute end of the church of Christ in this world. No dispensation of the Spirit, no church. He goes on to say, if we have not the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. Let me pray. Father, we are <clears throat> thankful We are thankful for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are thankful that you sent not only your Son, but you sent him as well, that you appointed two great means whereby we might be saved the giving of your Son to accomplish our redemption, and the sending of your Spirit to apply that redemption to us. We pray that we would be a people who are continually dependent upon Your Spirit. That we would be instant in prayer and constantly in Your Word, wanting to hear His voice in the Scriptures. We pray that in our ministry and in missions, that we would be spirit-dependent, that that would be demonstrated in our desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the word of God, to be continually in prayer, that that would be evidenced in our avoidance of worldly methods that attempt to manipulate people in particular ways. That we would make open statements of the truth. Knowing that people are blinded by the God of this world. And that it is only your spirit who can open their eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and so be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.